చూపించగా Hi, this is Michelle Kanan and you're listening to the Radically Selfish podcast. Radically Selfish is a movement. It's a personal revolution. And so I'm talking to women that have personally revolutionized their own lives and taken back the definition for what it means to be happy, healthy and to do things their own way. Fuck what society tells you to do. You get to live the life that you want. Today I'm talking to sex educator, writer, and self-proclaimed popcorn monster, Erica Hart. You probably know of Erica from her legendary topless Afropunk photo that inspired a movement that changed the way we view breast cancer. Literally, Google image search has never been the same. Since then, Erica's visibility and message have exploded, and that's the point. She's showing the world and Instagram censorship policies that her existence is resistance. Excuse any sirens in the background and enjoy our conversation on race, gender, ability, visibility, and Erica's powerful work. Welcome, welcome to our conversation and welcome to this episode of the Radically Selfish podcast. Thank you. Yes, and today I have the amazing Erica Hart here talking with me. And Erica, I would love to give you the opportunity just to start by introducing yourself. I mean, so many people know who you are and what you're about, but I really would love to give you a chance to tell people in your own words who you are and why you're here. Um sure. So my name is oh you already know my name. My name <laughs> is Erica Hart. I'm a little under the weather so I might <laughs> be a little uh slow with the questions. But no um, problem. um I identify as a black queer femme Sagittarius popcorn connoisseur um breast cancer survivor you may and I'm, I'm also a sexuality educator you may or may not have seen me topless all over the internet <laughs> i went topless two years ago at afropunk which is a music festival in brooklyn and i just haven't really stopped after that um i showed my i've had a double mastectomy and i showed my double mastectomy scars as a way to raise awareness with black and brown queer and trans um folks who are often in large attendance at afropunk and who are left out of many conversations and many narratives but even in breast cancer we aren't seeing ourselves so that's why I went topless and then after that it just kind of exploded um and yeah just topless all the time now but i also um it's not just to raise awareness it was also a way for me to reclaim my body um as a breast cancer survivor and um also as a black femme being kind of stripped of that all the time throughout my life but especially after breast cancer so i think if you exist in a black body you're always doing you're always an activist you're always doing some sort of racial justice and social justice work but that is also the work that i do and get paid for it so it's not just something i do as a as a function of emotional labor and surviving white supremacy in this country but mm-hmm. it is something that i do to educate folks so to put them in action mm-hmm. um, and i think it's consistent i don't think you can teach um sexuality education without talking about race so there's definitely definitely something that is a major part of the work that i do 
Well, I feel like I could just let you keep going because you're answering any question that I had or what I wanted to talk about. But you bring up, a, I mean, so many good points, but you make me think about one of your most recent posts that I was reading about demanding to be paid what you're worth. Yeah. And I mean, so much about who you are and the work that you're doing is exactly why I invited you to have this conversation and to be featured on the Radically Selfish podcast, because yeah. you're such an example of how by taking a stand for yourself and what you needed and what you know is right, you're also doing that work for all the other people around you that deserve that kind of recognition and compensation and awareness and attention too. So I wanted to just start by honoring that from the start. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And there's been so much going on for you. It's like every time I turn on the internet, like you're on a runway or you're Mm -hmm. doing a talk or you're being featured in something. So I I remember reading, I I don't know the exact quote, but you were saying something about how you had a vision for yourself about how you wanted it to be or that you wanted to be in front of audiences like this. And like you really manifested this kind of reality for yourself. And that's so much a part of the work that I do. And I, what I'm teaching women is how to create the reality that we desire. That's oftentimes it starts just from being birthed in our dreams. So I'd love it if maybe you could start by talking about that, like how you take a dream or a vision and how you've created so much out of it. I wanted to be, if you talk about like fashion, right? Like when I was 13, I was a part of some very like newspaper clipping fashion agency that kind of took any person that was over a size five, that was, that was taller than, or, or was five, seven at the age of like 12, which was me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just started working with me and, you know, they put, there was like a runway in their office and I'm from Maryland. Um, I'm from the suburbs of Maryland and everything we did was kind of in Baltimore. And, you know, you went to, we went to Baltimore city and it was like, we were going to this major agency and they had this like long runway and, and there's lots of girls and they're practicing and they watched me do my walk. And then they met with me and my mom and they said, you know, Erica is really, you know, beautiful, but I think that she should do more commercial work, not runway. And from that, it, that it didn't, I didn't, that didn't even compute to me what that meant. But for me, that meant I can't do it. Like I'm not, <laughs> is it meant for me? Um, my grandmother was also not a kind person and she made sure that I, that I knew that modeling wasn't for me on a regular mm. basis. Mm. Um, and then also how the media shows modeling even to this day is not heavy with people who look like me. Mm-hmm. So it was enough evidence in the world that said, you know, Erica, this isn't probably for you. So I just kind of took myself out of the game. So being on runways and modeling and things like that, it's even hard for me to acknowledge that that's something that I do um, because so much of my work is political. And there is, I can't deny that element of kind of like that heartbroken 13 year old that wanted to be on runways. Um, and now it's like, I'm not a model. I'm, you know, I'm do this is all my, my political work, which it is. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge that I have, I benefit from pretty privilege. And the reason why I'm on runways is because I'm attractive. It's not the only, you know, I'm not the only black queer person that has breast cancer. Um, it's just that I have this, I have this, um, this platform, not just out of nowhere, not because I like fought for it or, 
Um, obviously, I, I stood for something and I did something pretty radical at Afropunk, but why it keeps going um, isn't because, I mean, I work my ass off for sure, but, it, but we have to acknowledge that this country loves beauty. Mm. Uh, and if I didn't fit this standard of what folks want to look like, then I probably wouldn't have as much attention on me in the public eye, or people probably wouldn't want to talk to me as much. Uh, and that's just the function of how this goes. I kind of think about Tarana Burke um, in the Me Too movement. And mm-hmm. Tarana Burke is not, in traditional sense, attractive. And I say traditional, very like a, with a grain of salt. Um, but in the eyes of the media, Tarana Burke is not attractive. And I think that is the main reason why she wasn't on the cover of Time. Um, but a bunch of other cisgender women who are attractive were mm-hmm. and the me too movement is hers i mean she completely created that hashtag absolutely absolutely so i think that this is a perfect example of why people will put me on the cover of their magazine but not some of my other breast cancer my other black um breast cancer friends because it doesn't fit their ideal this is not how i get to capitalize or sell something mm-hmm. um so i think to come back to your question, um, I didn't, I mean, I, I've worked my ass off to be a sexuality educator. I've worked my ass off to exist in this country um, as a black queer femme, but I don't know that I've worked my ass off to model, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I can't acknowledge that I get to model because of how I look. Um, but then I also, there's the, privilege of knowing that why I'm modeling Mm -hmm. not like oh my god this is so random that this is happening I'm so clear that it's not like I'm clear of how this country works and the ways in which where people are indoctrinated to like something um for x y and z reasons like I know that um so I'm not I don't come into this like oh that's you know it's weird that this (laughs) is happening or I've worked really hard for this it's like if th- this is different. This is coming because I've because I'm in the public eye and because people can put me in these positions because it still looks good for them without actually being pushed over any sort of ledge. Hmm. Well, I have, I have two things to say to that. The yeah. first is um, how I recognize, or you know, also f- I had the same experience. I mean, of course, you have very different experiences in life, but for me to not be in like. Um, I had a lot of feedback from my family about my weight and my body type and my hair and how loud I was and how opinionated I was. And and there's so many quote unquote pretty or beautiful people out there. So first of all, how you're, you're not definitely not just resting on your looks at all because you've taken whatever privilege you've had from that and you politicized it and you've used it even more to galvanize the movement and the message that you're sharing and that you're putting out there with the world. So that is one thing. And the second point (laughs) is that when I was talking about you being in front of audiences or being so visible, it wasn't only in reference to you walking down a runway um, and, and people noticing you in, in that kind of way. It was, it's just how you're building this kind of attention and awareness and using all of your different talents and skills and what's valuable 
uh, in terms of what your values are and what your integrity is and what you're about to continue to elevate your message and to continue to reach new people and new audiences to teach them about what's important and to be visible and to show other women out there or femmes out there that might not have been able to relate to anybody in the public eye in the way that they're able to relate to you now. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, that's a statement within itself, right? Like that's saying something. I don't even know what to say in response to that. Like that is, <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I get that. That's yeah. clear. Yeah. And I really, I, I want to have just a conversation with you rather than just having like question, answer, question, answer, because yeah. you as humans, we're all so complicated and we have so much within us and on the outside of us to unpack about who we are and what we stand for and why we're here. And so I didn't come with an agenda. Like, these are my questions and this is how you're going to explain who you are and, and about yourself to people. Like, there's so much that's going on for you. And, and even the way that you introduced yourself, like, I, I can really pay attention that you would say that you're a popcorn enthusiast, you know, like the order of how you introduce yourself and what's important to you and who you are. Like, that's not how most people introduce themselves. You know, they say like what their career is or, you know, they're, they're very linear about defining their identity and you're very different in that kind of way. And it's really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I, I am someone that, I really love Audre Lorde and the work of Audre Lorde. Mm. And when, before Audre Lorde would speak anywhere, she always introduced herself as a black woman, lesbian, writer, poet, activist. Like she just kept going on about all the ways that she identifies. And I think the beauty in that is for people to, for me, it's I'm always asserting who I am because people have all of these assumptions about who I am before I even speak as a black person. So it's important for me to assert who I am so you can interrupt those conversations a little bit. So I feel like even in my introduction of myself is an opportunity to shift how you may be viewing me. Um, And if I just talked about what I do, I don't, that's not all of me. I know that when I used to hit on people before I started (laughs) before I was in a a very happy relationship, um, I would always ask them what they did. And I wanted to stop asking people that because it's just not the end all, like what you do. Like, I don't, I don't really, honestly, I don't really care what you do. I want to know if you're fulfilled. I want to know how you identify and how you navigate that identity. Um, I'm interested in a way more than what people do. So, yeah, that's why I just make sure it's all up there. (laughs) And then maybe one day somebody will send me some popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so since we're on that topic, what is your favorite popcorn? I really, like, do not know about popcorn. Is there a special flavor? Oh, (laughs) hell yes. I love um, white cheddar popcorn. I love popcorn with rosemary. I love popcorn with sea salt. <laughs> I've had a salt and vinegar popcorn that was uh, amazing that I have not been able to find. Yeah. Love all the popcorn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, yeah, you know, back to the, what do you do? I, I mean, I grew up in New York. I feel like that's such a New York question. Like people feel like they need to get quote unquote, get to the point, you know, that's yeah. like, the, what's your name and what do you do as if like, that's how you'll really understand a person. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, women like you or like me, you know, we've really, um, we've found careers or found ways to, um, 
create careers that are so in line with um, our values and like our identity. You know, we found a way to turn our passion or what's important to us and what we're here to do on this earth, like into that career and into a way to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I even feel like career is, is the, or what do you do? You know, like that, that's, a, that kind of question can really be part of a different kind of conversation now. For sure. For sure. It looks different. So, and that's so interesting because I was, you know, of course I follow you on Instagram and that's how I first found you. And, um, and I, every time your articles or articles about you come out, I'm reading about you and it feels like what you're doing is it's changing and evolving all the time. So how do you balance like the, the sex education work with the modeling, with the speaking, like if you had like a mission, is, is there a clear mission that you have or like a platform that you're about or something that's most important to you that you want to share? Yeah, I would say in, in every way that I can, in every space to be dismantling white supremacy. Hmm. Uh, so if I'm in a, on a magazine cover, I am I being interviewed. There's probably something in that interview where I'm talking about the ways in which white supremacy impacted my life and the, how I believe that it's impacting most of our lives, but especially the most marginalized and always talking about that and always bringing that to the forefront. Um, and even in my sexuality education work, I mean, that's always a function of people wanting to control how much information you have and uh, what you know about your body and what you don't know. And because I work with um, young people primarily, um, they are related to like they have no bodily autonomy like not at all like they their bodies belong to the adults around them so to talk to them about their bodies and where they where what feels good for them is not allowed and that's all inside of white supremacy like that's all inside of colonization that said we are supposed to be like not touched or young people are not supposed to be touched. We're not supposed to talk about sex education. Um, this is, we're only supposed to talk about this behind closed doors. All of this stuff is, is all very much. And I can, if we have more time, we can historically connect it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is, I guess like that is my main mission. And I guess also that all beings, if they want to are desiring of pleasure or deserving of pleasure and mm. whatever way that looks like to them. Mm. I so resonate with that. Like I got so much <laughs> bad feedback from my family and especially from like older generations. And I mean, even from like a lot of other people about there about why am I trying to prioritize happiness or desire or things that feel good. Mm-hmm. Like so many people like, or everybody, right? We, we were taught these ideas or these ways of being that at one point we all have to realize, like, wake up, like, who taught me that? Why is that idea in my head? Like, why do I feel guilty about that or shameful about that? Like, is it really true to me? Or is that just what everybody else believes? And, and that's why I believe it too. And it takes like a, a real decision and intention to unscramble that or to like detach those ways of being programmed from from our minds for sure i mean there's a lot of unlearning that has to be done on a regular basis even with myself yeah for yourself and i I was just bringing it up based on you know how what you were talking about for teaching young people like it was only i feel like when i was getting to the age of 30 when i started to really question like you know about 
why, um, why I had certain reactions to things or certain views on my body and what I was allowed to wear or about pleasure or how I was allowed to express myself. And I realized that, oh my God, I'm like 30 years old and I'm still living according to the rules of something that my parents taught me, that their parents taught them, that their parents taught them like back generations and generations. Mm -hmm. And it's institutional, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just a intra or interpersonal conversation. It's mm-hmm. it's an institutional, it's ideological, it's in, it exists in our systems that, mm-hmm. you know, people will tell me, you know, oh, it's in our, our rules and regulations that young people, we can't talk to them about sex. And I'm like, well, who in God's name wrote that? And how old is it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, why, why are you still following that? Like without even thought or a critical lens on it, if it was um, I'm, I'm, any example I could think of is probably inaccurate because it's still happening because most of the shit that exists in our institutional systems has been yet to be um, put under a critical lens to actually shift. Um, so I was going to say any like literally I was going to give an example. But then as I was thinking of the example, I was like, it's that's not changed either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love it if you could share an example for people that are listening, like to get their minds like, oh, yeah, to connect the dots for them. Well, I was going to say, you know, you wouldn't separate black kids from white kids. Um, in a school, but the thing is, is that schools are still segregated. Mm. So it doesn't, <laughs> that state, that, that example doesn't apply. Mm. Um, and it shows that even though institutionally someone has said, this is now how this shouldn't be, it still happens um, in a, on an institutional level called discriminatory housing practices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> That is, I think that is where the work is to be done. I think we've done a lot of work intrapersonally and I mean like internalized. I don't know that white folks have done a lot of interpersonal work, but I know a lot of black folks have and I don't necessarily think that we have to do anything. But one way, one area that I think folks could actually go to work and actually impact something is institutionally. Um, and where we are just following the same rules and regulations and principles and systems that have just been in place for no apparent reason other than to keep um, white folks comfortable. And generally speaking, white cis men. Yeah, I was um, exactly. Gonna, I was exactly going to say that it's it's the comfort level. Mm-hmm. And that's really what's happening right now. Is there's this whole with feeling of real discomfort (laughs) that's in the public awareness, you know, that was always like below the surface. So it's an incredible time now, but you're exactly right on, of course, that when people are comfortable, like they're not motivated to make those kinds of changes or they'll benefit from a system or from rules that were just set up a, to serve them and be like to keep them from questioning anything. So I, I, it's, it's an amazing point that you just brought up about the power of discomfort and how not only does it make people question and reassess but how necessary it is for that kind of growth and that kind of change yeah yeah i mean i think that people can say out of their mouths white people can say out of their mouths that they're benefiting from racism i know i hear that all the time i benefit from racism and i know it Mm -hmm. um i have privilege and i know it but then there's no actionable step that follows because where we are with talking about race and racism, like my partner says, is we always talk about it from an emotional standpoint. 
Hmm. It's like, I, that statement, I have privilege. I know that I benefit from racism. Might as well be the same statement as I feel bad that I have these, that this, that I'm in a white body. Cause it really doesn't make any difference. If you acknowledge that you benefit from racism, if you don't do anything about it, that's true. You know, like if you don't talk to your landlord and the company that serviced your building that you know that you're gentrifying, what is the point of you saying you're a gentrifier? You know, it doesn't make a difference at the end of the day. If you're not talking to them about like, okay, how can we not do this anymore? What needs to happen? Putting your housing on the line, like so many black folks and so many people of color, like what we're never going to shift anything. It's just going to be a lot of people saying lots of things, but not taking any action. Mm. Yeah, what you're talking about right now is another way of, of bringing about personal, that kind of personal responsibility mm-hmm. for people to take it upon themselves. I would like to ask you for yourself. I know that we're talking on an institutional level a lot uh, in this conversation. I'm also curious to understand on a personal level or within yourself what you're what you're doing with yourself like what I guess what I'm trying to say is I see how much you are in the public eye and what you're doing for other people but I know at the same time how meaningful it is for you and the story that you shared in the beginning just even very lightly that you touched on about your grandma's feedback and the feedback that you got from the modeling agency about what was and wasn't possible like I know how much our own personal pain or unfulfillment from childhood or from our lives like can be the fuel towards us working towards what we want. Mm-hmm. So I'd really love to talk a little bit about how that's been for you, like what this kind of work has given you and been able to heal uh, inside yourself. I don't know that I'm healed per se. Well, it's an ongoing process. Let's put it like that. But I don't know that healing necessarily happens in the work that I do per se. I think it's affirming and it's validating. Um, But it's a lot to navigate the spaces that I'm in and share my story. So I don't know that it's healing. I, I guess affirmation and validation is a function of healing. So I do feel healed in a lot of sense in my body, I guess, from being affirmed. Um, and I was telling my partner the other day, like, people are starting to give me a big head. Like, I think <laughs> that I'm really attractive. And that is not something that is a, a thought that I've had really ever in my life. Hmm. Um, and I had that thought the other day. And it's not like attractiveness is going to pay my bills or get me a gig or pay me. But it did make me feel good in that moment. Like, wow, I have never been present to this before. Like I have in this moment. Um, so I think that's healing to kind of like heal that little girl inside of me that really, really, really wanted to be attractive, but then also know that that is not the end of the day. Like that's not the end all that I see myself as attractive. And, and it doesn't necessarily make a difference. It just made me feel good in my body. Mm. Um, so I think there's healing in that for sure. But I don't know. I think, I don't know that the end goal is necessarily healing inside of my work. It's to disrupt things. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I think about healing. I think about healing when I'm at yoga, when I'm at acupuncture, but they don't necessarily come together, which may be a gap in my work. Hmm. Um, because I'm not necessarily thinking about healing. I'm thinking about disruption. <laughs> I'm thinking about 
the ways in which we get to disrupt. Um, I think because I've lived under this veil in the United States of not knowing so much of my history because it's been completely erased um, or kept from me, that me reading more about my history and then thus educating folks, especially black and brown people about our history, is healing for me. Um, but because I'm so often in white spaces and talking to white folks and educating white folks, that's not healing for me. That's work. So I think it depends on where I am, where my work is getting disseminated, who it's being received by. My work is always for black and brown people. But at the same time, it's massively consumed by lots of white folks. So it's, that's not a problem, but it, it does look like work for me. It doesn't necessarily look like healing. So I yeah, I was, I was going to ask you that question, like um, who your work is for or who you're talking to when you're doing your work. Yeah, my work is absolutely for black and um, black, queer and trans um, femmes because the, the ways in which our bodies are just completely eradicated, murdered, um, without any thought is beyond me. Um, and especially folks who inside of that same intersection are disabled Mm. and it's just, there is no movement there. I mean, the, the life expectancy for a black trans woman is 35 years old. And that is nuts. Like that should not be, that should be a complete epidemic. Um, right now, Black mothers are dying at higher rates in this country than any other mom because of all of the emotional labor that they've had to endure over time from racism um, that then when they go to have a baby, it's so much stress on the body anyway. It's stress for anybody on the body to have a baby that they then die afterwards because it's essentially something called weathering. It's essentially that that black mom is having a baby biologically as like a 60 year old, not as a 30 year old because of all the stress that's been on their body. So it is absolutely to lift up and to illuminate black femmes, Um, black people. Yes. But even inside of blackness, there are, there's privilege Um, and black cis men benefit from a major privilege on a regular basis. So I'm always, 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 always centering the most marginalized black trans women. Hmm. Okay. I have a question that's, I mean, not related exactly to this conversation, but is of course very pivotal for you, which is, or for a, a pivotal moment in, in, in your visibility um, and, and your platform, elevating your platform was that moment that you did decide to take off your top at mm-hmm. the festival. Um, I, I mean, I see that moment and I'm just like, damn, (laughs) you know, like that is just something that is so beyond anything that I would have ever thought that I could be comfortable with or like that I would have ever thought to do. Like what, what was that moment that, what, what flipped the switch? Like, what was it for you that was just like, I'm going to do this. And, and what, what was that, what made that turning point for you? I was tired of not seeing myself. Mm. I was tired of not seeing myself in the media and books in my neighborhood, in my classrooms. Uh, I was just tired. And when I didn't see myself in breast cancer, I was like, okay, this is really like a last straw. This doesn't make any sense. And it's also that the, how we censor bodies is so ridiculous to me um, that 
you know, because I don't have nipples, that picture can't go viral without any censorship. Right. Um, and that my Instagram will knock a wood, never be taken down um, because I don't have nipples and they don't have any argument for it. Right. All oh, they're blocking is nipple. And like, what? Like, it's just so, so it, it, it I'm, yeah, again, it's the pushing up of against white supremacy. And that's just what that was. It was in a very, I really, when that picture that went viral, the one with the flowers on my head, mm. I didn't even know that somebody was taking a photo of me. <laughs> I was just standing there. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So it was just, it's wild. It's wild. It- well, that's what I, you know, when I talk about healing or when I was talking about healing moments, like I, I would think of that as an amazing example of that, you know, like you. Oh yeah. Okay. That's, that's yes. And then that's consistent with what I said in that I'm surrounded by people who look like me hmm. and I'm being affirmed by folks who look like me. And that is absolutely healing. Absolutely. Positively. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, even with, like I said, all my privilege and with the color of my skin and I I had so much um, negativity thrown at me and shame about my body and um, being overweight and um, being denied food and um, being told that I couldn't be beautiful because of my body type. And um, so it was, it was so incredibly inspirational for me to, you know, you know, like even just to be in a, in a bikini was something embarrassing for me for so much of my life. So to see, you being able to do that and just to do it for yourself. Like, I think that's so much of why um, your work resonates for me. And I feel like one of the reasons why so many people can really feel you and um, identify with you and want to be close to your energy is because of how personal it is. Like, I know again, that you keep talking about doing it for other people and pushing up against societal structures and white supremacy. And I hear that and I honor that completely. And at the same time, I just really see you in it and what you needed to do for yourself and your own personal experience and your anger and your grief and your frustration and using that as a personal fuel to stand for who you are and be just visible in that kind of way. So it's so incredible even that I didn't know that you didn't know that that photo was being taken of you because it shows just how brightly you were shining, you know, that you were mesmerizing (laughs) that someone would take that photo and then the world would just gravitate towards you in that kind of way. Thank you. And I I think that's so um, fantastic because if you, my idea is if you, it's not my idea, it's any uh, social justice person, but if you center the most marginalized, you will reach everybody. Everybody will get reached. Everybody will be affirmed. Everybody will um, see themselves. Everybody, like you, it's everybody will be handled. The problem is is that we don't start there. We start with, oh, everybody, we're going to, and it's everybody really just means white. That's right. And then the rest is an afterthought. That's right. If you actually center the most marginalized, then you actually get your life too. You actually get to see yourself as well because we're all impacted by white supremacy. It's not just black and brown bodies. That's right. All of us are. Yeah, it was only until I started seeing more women of color in the media um, that I finally started to accept myself and love myself for who I was and seeing beautiful brown bodies on the beaches, like 
flaunting their curves that like nobody taught me that like yeah. part of my culture like it just was not part of the narrative it was just oh this is the magazine and this is the standard of beauty and you're either in or you're out so yeah. you better work hard at being like that or else you're out and there's no value for you like you know or how you are it's just not beautiful in that way so I I know personally for myself I owe so much even to this day that I'm affirmed like when I was on vacation um, at a beach a couple months ago that my body was affirmed by all the women of other cultures and other body shapes being proud and looking beautiful being exactly who they were and I just have so much gratitude for that yeah thank you Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So is there anything with everything that we've talked about, is there anything that you want people to know or that you want our listeners to really understand or to take notice of? Maybe it's something that you're working on or a, a project that you're involved in or just a truth that you really want to share? Um, I'm not necessarily working on any projects. I do have some gigs coming up that are mostly private because they're at colleges, but I can share those with you on the, um, when we get off, I can email them to you. But Perfect. what I will say is that I think, like I said, I do think that we are living in a time where people want to, you know, have a lot of social justice lingo under their belt and talk about wanting to make a shift. Um, and I think it's really important that if you are interested in making a shift that you do so with money. Um, and I know people are like, oh, but I don't have money. But money looks a lot of different ways. Like you can give folks resources. So if you are interested in racial justice and social justice, and that's something you are always like, how can I, what can I do? What can I do? Um, especially as a white person is to, if you're working in a, a organization, for example, and you know that you are making more money than the black person that works there. Talk to your boss about having that shift. If you are living in an apartment and you know that you're paying less rent than the people that are there, or you know that someone got pushed out, talk to your landlord about it. So that's all, that's not, doesn't, it's not a function of necessarily you taking money out of your pocket, even mm -hmm. though I think that that is also ex absolutely necessary. Um, but it's constantly removing yourself from the picture and centering someone else, mm. um, especially a black or a brown person. I say black or brown to be inclusive, but I'm, I'm really saying black. Um, and there's been a, there's a lot of anti-blackness that exists period, but it also exists in social justice movements. Um, so mm. to center black folks really take something and it takes something beyond just saying you're going to center black people. And I say, just put your money where your mouth is. That's what I leave people. Well, I love a, that your definition or your explanation of how to do it with money is not just please donate to this fund. No, that fuck it, that. Yeah. yeah. But that it really puts again, the responsibility on each of us to do our part. And I love that because again, it goes back to, it might be really uncomfortable or it would be really uncomfortable for a lot mm -hmm. of people. And I know for, especially a lot of women, they're afraid um, of like speaking their truth or speaking up for themselves or like saying what they know is right on the inside. So I, I'm really loving that you, that you put that out there and that you give that as an example, because what happens when we don't speak our minds or say what's right, like it rots us from the inside. Like it's yeah. a poison on the inside for us, yeah. whether it's in our own personal lives or in the institutional and the social justice sphere as well. Yeah. And don't resist what's uncomfortable because if you're noticing that you're uncomfortable, that's a function of privilege. Because I don't even notice when I'm uncomfortable. 
Hmm. Like I'm just uncomfortable. I'm at a constant discomfort. Um, so if you are noticing that you're uncomfortable, then that's something that will then end soon. So be uncomfortable because learning only happens in the discomfort. Oh, that's so badass. That's a quote that's going to come up from this interview. Yeah, people, you know, it, it, in our society, they're so quick to try to run away from discomfort, right? Or to mm-hmm. medicate against it or that they don't want to feel it. Like when I think about America and, and my parents aren't from this country, my parents are refugees and they had a really hard life where they grew up uh, in, in a communist regime. But, and one of the things that they love so much about America is how comfortable life is here. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's comes a certain level of comfort where it just turns into complacency. Yeah. Right. Like where yeah. we just get like so cool with everything, like, and we're afraid to go back to that level mm-hmm. from like a personal development place. And from like looking at what's going on in society right now, like we need that kind of discomfort that's growth and that's change. And that's like creating something new. That's the only way those kinds of things happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Amazing. For sure. Awesome. 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 You've been listening to the Radically Selfish Podcast. Thanks so much to my amazing guest today, Erica Hart, to my producer extraordinaire, Nikki Thomas, and to Ducks for my theme music, which I love more and more with each episode. And thank you so much to my listeners. Without you, this podcast wouldn't be growing as fast as it is. It was the number 10 spirituality podcast on iTunes in February. Holla! And just a reminder to do you, because if you don't, who will? And that's my life motto, and I hope it's yours too. Have a beautiful day. And another phrase about the wise, a painted chapter of the life. Keep it in the style, pattern customized. Pen another phrase about.